The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome, everybody, to the Work-Life Balance. This is Rick A. Morris. I'm here to help out, and we're going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite topics today, which is making emotional conversations unemotional. I'd like to thank everyone who is listening in. And uh, also uh, those that stayed over from the soul of the enterprise. What a great show they did today on that Christmas Carol uh, portion. So we're going to be talking today about making emotional conversations unemotional. And it, it's a very big topic for me. It's near and dear. In fact, if you want to share anything with me, you can follow me at, at Rick A. Morris or go to www.rsquared. There's a D on that. So R-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D consulting.com. And find me at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. So this topic was really something that, that I built over time as I started to mature in my career. For those of you that didn't listen to the first show last week, my career is a project manager. I do project management for a living. And it's one of the weirdest kind of things to describe to people what we do for a living. And so just to jump right into the show and, and start to uh, work some of this, I wanted to do a little bit of an exercise. So... You know, if you're driving, if you're listening in, wherever you're listening, pay attention to just for a moment because I've got a small exercise for you to go through. Um, so what I'd like you guys to do is pick any number between 1 and 10. So make it a whole number. Make it simple. Uh, I am going to ask you to do some math, and I know it's Friday, so I apologize for that. But pick any number between 1 and 10. Then we're going to double that number. And then I'd like you to add 8 to that number. So then divide the number by 2 and then subtract the number that you started with. So just to do that one more time, you pick any number between one and 10, double it, add eight to it, divide the number by two, and then subtract the number you started with. So now you should have an end result in your head. So what I'd like you to do next is select the letter that corresponds to the number that you have. So if you have the number one, pick A, number two, pick B, number three, pick C, number four, pick D, and so on. So now that you have a letter of the alphabet, I'd like you to pick a country that starts with that letter. Now what I want you to do here is then take the next letter in the alphabet and come up with a typical zoo animal that starts with that letter. And then finally, pick a logical color for that animal. So you should have three words in your head, the country, a zoo animal, and the color. And so what I'm wondering, and it's an amazing result when we do this with a live audience, is how many people actually selected Denmark, elephant, and gray? Now, if you're sitting there, you know, maybe you picked uh, something like Deutschland or Dubai, which isn't a country, but you'd be amazed how many times that's picked. Um, if you didn't pick elephant, maybe you picked eagle or emu. 
And, you know, for the color, you may have picked pink, but I'm not going to judge what you guys did last night. So really what we're talking about here is this is something called predictive analysis. So if you did end up with Denmark elephant in gray, first of all, you should have ended up with the number four. If you didn't end up with the number four, we didn't do the math right. And that's because it's Friday and that's okay. But if you did end up with Denmark elephant in gray, what you just experienced is what we call Denmark, or Denmark is what we actually call predictive analysis. And what predictive analysis is, is a, a large study over time of what people will actually select. Now, I didn't write this. This is something that's been on the internet forever, but I love to use this to describe what project management does. Because what a project manager does is essentially lead you through a process where you as a sponsor can select whatever you want to select. And we're going to help you make decisions throughout your project, and hopefully we're generating predictable results. But the, the key thing to this is that there is a process. So if I started off with, okay, everybody, just pick a country in your head, and I didn't drive you to the number four, have you select D, where most people are going to select Denmark, then how wide would the results be? So if I just said pick a country, there's no way I could have gotten a majority of the audience to follow along with that, with that thing. And if I said just pick any zoo animal, who cares? Right? There's no way that I can generate predictive analysis. But unfortunately, what happens in the project world is a lot of times when sponsors select a project, they're going ahead and, and picking a budget and a date for us to go hit, yet we haven't followed a process. So the question is, is how do we come to that decision? So when I describe to executives and to other people what it is I do for a living, I love this exercise because essentially I'm going to lead you through a process, but we need to follow it start to finish. And if we can go through that process, then I'm going to generate predictable results. When I do this live, it's, it's literally 95% of the audience that will raise their hand when we said Denmark, Elephant, and Gray. The other 5% I can catch when I was coming back through, which is something called risk analysis, and saying, you know, you may have picked Deutschland or you could have picked an eagle or an emu, something of that sort. Um, and I'm picking up the rest of the audience to about 99%. So how many of us would like to have projects and project results that end out at that 85 to 95% range versus what the industry average is right now, which is around 35 to 46%, which is unbelievable. And what's crazy is that we continue to follow that same process over and over and over again. So we'll create a project, we just pick a date, we pick a budget, and then we try to constrain our resources to do that without really recognizing what it is that we can do. And so what happens is because of these mandated dates, because of people that are being stressed and overworked in their, in their work life, um, we, we end up starting to have a tremendous amount of what I call emotional conversations. So as we get into the emotional conversations topic, what I'm talking about is I'm not saying let's remove passion. I'm a very passionate person. I'm actually Irish and Italian, which means I can drink and I can fight and it pretty much happens in that order, right? So we like to argue. We like to understand and, and really get into different points. So I'm very passionate. So we're not saying remove any kind of passion there. What I'm saying is, is a lot of times when we get into conversations, we have more of an emotional outburst, which can actually degrade how people take a look at us in the workforce. So, for example, when, I, when I'm saying you know, what causes emotional conversations, it's the things that we just talked about. It's mandated dates. It's stressed and overworked team members. It's estimates that are not reliable. It's the project blame game for anybody who's been in a project team that's also called lessons learned. And so what we're wanting to do is, in these situations, apply a process for ourselves where we can take the emotion out of a conversation and making sure that we're getting to a root cause of an issue 
and, and make sure that we're driving what it is that we're looking for. So I do have a three-step process, and that's what we're going to actually be covering over the next 45 minutes or so uh, on, on what causes the emotional conversations. And then we'll actually talk about the process uh, to, to make those unemotional. And then we'll apply that to some of these things that we just said. So how do I, as a project manager, deal with the fact that I have a mandated date? Or how do I, as a project manager, deal with the fact that I have stressed and overworked team members? And so we'll actually go through and explore that. And again, I'll leave some time open at the end of the show. If anybody has some specific questions and wants to call in, wants to talk to us, we'll certainly have that number uh, on the breaks for you so that you can dial in. So first, what is an emotional conversation? So to me, that's when we have some sort of outburst out of frustration that's basically limiting uh, the view of our executives or sponsors of, of us as employees. Things like when we say, you know, that date's impossible. There's no way we can hit that project date. Or, you know, we scream out, we don't have enough resources to do this project. Or um, we maybe get mad with one of our team members and we say, I thought you said it was 40 hours to do this. And, you know, you've been working on this three months and, and it's not done. What's going on? Um, and one of the bigger things that could cause that is, is when, you know, a, a project manager will say, well, that's a scope change. And for those of you that have any, ever experienced that, that's probably one of the more emotional conversations uh, because a lot of people don't even understand what the scope of the project is. So they don't understand why uh, somebody would be upset with a scope change. And so what I want to do is start going through the process for us and start talking about what is that three-step process in order to make an emotional conversation unemotional? And again, we'll apply it to some of these direct things. So my first step, the first step is establish your mindset. Your first step is that we do not want to say the negative statement. As a matter of fact, I've learned how not to say no and instead say yes with conditions. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is instead, instead of saying, well, you know, well, there's no way we can get that done. I always say, we can absolutely figure that out. Let me go find out what it's going to, what it's going to do, right? You have to put yourself into this positive mindset that you can do anything. And it, it, as a matter of fact, if you look at the scope of projects and things that we've done just a, as, a, as a human race, really, we can. I mean, JFK said we were going to put a person on the moon. Now, some of you may or may not believe that actually happened. I'm not here to judge that, but what I'm saying is, we can do some amazing things if we have the right amount of time, we have the right people on staff, and we have the budget in order to execute that project. And so there's no way we start shortchanging things and, and you know, removing scope or, or doing things like that that could impact our project. So the, the thought pattern is, is we really can accomplish anything. And, and as a project manager, you're not supposed to say yes or no. That's not your job. Our job is not to say that's a scope change or there's no way we can do it. My job is to go figure out how it can be done and then present those options back to people in order to make the right decision. So they may say, hey, I want to get this done by June. You'll say, absolutely, I'm going to go figure that out. And then we have to come back and turn around and say, well, we would have to hire 15 people in order to make that. But that's not my call as a project manager. My job is to figure out what would it take to get it done. But so many people, they immediately go to that negative. It can't be done. There's no way we can do this. None of those other things. So I want to make sure that we're establishing that can-do attitude. And it's amazing that when, I mean, think about people that you've worked with in the past. Anybody that is that can-do attitude that can see through 
what we deem as impossible and help build a plan to make it possible, how fun is it to work with somebody like that? How cool is it to be a part of a project team that can revolutionize an industry? And so that all starts, it doesn't start with, man, I'm never going to be successful or, man, this is going to suck. Never starts that way. It always starts with, how can we accomplish this? We're going to change the world. What are we going to do? How are we going to get it done? And so you have to have that can-do attitude in order to hit that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a quick break here. And when I come back, I'm going to describe a couple of situations of what I'm talking about around establishing your mindset in our first step of making emotional conversations unemotional. You're listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other. Where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage where applications aren't just part of your brand, they are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, Visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. Thank you for everybody for staying on. Welcome back to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. So we're talking right now about making emotional conversations unemotional. And we just finished talking about step one, which is establishing your mindset and having that positive attitude. So we, we learn how not to say no, but stay, to say yes with conditions. 
So I wanted to give an example of that from, from you know, my past history. I was teaching an organization how to do service-level agreements. In, in a service-level agreement, basically, we're just trying to set up an expectation for the delivery of service so that we, we know what the expect is, expectation is from the business and from a technology side. And so this organization asked me to start working with the, the addition of, of personal computers. So how long should it take from the point that we order a PC to the point that it's actually delivered and ready to go on the desktop and in what that service level agreement should be? And so I started with, the you know, hey, we can do anything given the right amount of time and people, um, but it's really about what is going to make business sense. And, and a lady in the front row actually got upset with me when I said that statement. And she was like, well, you can't do anything. I was like, well, I mean, you know, certainly there's things we can't do, but from a process perspective, we can build a process to do anything we really want. And she goes, no, you can't. And I said, okay, well, what example are you looking for? And she goes, all right, well, when a, when a PC breaks, I want a new PC on my desk with all my files ready to go within five minutes. You couldn't build a process that delivered that kind of service level agreement. And so I took a second and thought about it, and I said, sure you can. And I said, so what you end up doing is you end up buying two PCs for every single person in the organization and you daisy chain them so that they're backing each other up every five minutes. And then you put a PC technician within five minutes of every single person in the organization just to stare at you to make sure that you're okay. And then the moment something breaks, you just raise your hand, they come over, they swap that PC out, and you're up and running within five minutes. Now, unfortunately, to, to deliver a service like that, it's probably going to cost a half a million dollars a person or maybe $250,000 a person. But the point is is we can do it. So really, what is it that you want? And so originally, they wanted a two-day turnaround. So they said two days from the point that we order a PC to what comes in. And the question was, why? Why, why are you looking for two days? And the, the real answer was is that their orientation process was two days. So a new person would show up on site, and they go, oh, man, forgot to order a computer for this person. And so they were wanting that process to be accelerated very quickly so that that person would have a computer when they showed up uh, to, to work, you know, after the orientation. And I said, okay, well, if we look at the two days, we can certainly do something like that. But what I'll have to do is, you know, we're using a, a, a build process through, at that time we were using Dell. And I said, it takes them five days to get it to us. So what we'll have to do is analyze the hiring patterns and find out what's the maximum amount of people that we would hire within that two-day period. And we'd have to stockpile the PCs. Now, what happens with technology today? The cost of hardware is going down. Right, so the normal cost of a of a personal computer continues to to trend downwards, while the power and processing speed and memory and everything that you're getting is going up. I said, so have you guys ever had a hiring freeze? And the answer was yes. And I said, you know, how often does that happen? They said probably once a quarter. I said, so unfortunately, what happens though is I have to stockpile PCs in a back room in order to make that two day SLA through that analysis. So what I need to do is buy the amount of computers that you know, could possibly be used. Now, if you go on a hiring freeze, those computers are going to sit there. When you come off that hiring freeze, then those are the first to go. So if you're okay with spending more money for less power based on the fact that you're on a hiring freeze, I think we can put a process like this into place. So they started to dive in a little bit further, and they're like, well, why would it be more cost and less hardware? And you know, we explained that whole process. And they ended up going from two days to 12 business days because they understood how long it should actually take to do something, how they were maximizing their, their, their money and all the other stuff. And they ended up with also a secondary process for emergencies to handle that two-day piece, which would lower the cost overall. And everybody got to a happy place. 
the positive in that story and why I always tell that story is that you know, if I just went in and said, two days is ridiculous. You guys are nuts. There's no way you want to do that, right? That's a very negative tone. It becomes an emotional conversation. People don't, you know, they just think that I'm being a roadblock or that I'm not being helpful, whatever. But by enabling the process and saying, absolutely, let's figure this out. Let's look at the cost. They'll start to drive their own decisions as to what's important to the business or not from a cost perspective. And the whole time you're viewed as that positive person that actually can bring resolution to it. So step one for me is just making that mindset, right? Being very positive no matter what. Step two of this process is getting to the data. To me, data rules all. Data can take an emotional-based conversation and turn it into an unemotional fact-based discussion. So for example, when we're emotional and we don't have data, we're saying things like, you're always late. You know, you, you never finish your task on time. Those are, those are very negative things. We're using terms like always and never, you know, and somebody can go, no, I was on time once two years ago. And now we're debating the term of always and never versus talking about the specific behavior or instance that we're trying to solve. So to me, we have to find metrics and get to the data. So that same conversation is saying, you know, hey, listen, I need to talk to you, you know, 18 out of your last 20 tasks came in late. I really need to find out if there's a better way we can, you know, help estimate or understand, you know, what your workload is or why are we missing so many. And so when we're using data as that discussion base versus the emotion of, you know, you're always, when you, when you say you're always late, right, that's an attack on a person. If we're saying, you know, look, we really, I'm trying to help you out and make sure that you can meet all your deadlines, 18 out of your last 20 tasks were behind, what can I do to, to help out in, in that scenario and try to make sure that we can start to fix some of this data? When you're, when you're focused on those types of things, it, it's amazing the, the different reactions that you can get when you're speaking with employees. And so the first thing I'm always doing is also validating whether or not there truly is an issue. So I may feel that you're always late, but I don't know. Until I start to dig into the facts and start to understand and look at some measurement criteria that I set up to ensure that what I'm about to say also is factually correct. So having data behind you is a fantastic way in order to help that that process through. Which leads me to my third step. Once the data is presented, we have to accept the answer that's given. I know that this is difficult, but your, your focus sometimes is on the end game, not that immediate win. So, for example, um, I like to think of each time we approach one of these emotional conversations almost like, you know, the, the sponsor or somebody that we're trying to influence is the judge. And you're kind of an attorney. And so if you think about that from a court case perspective, you go in, you plead your case, the judge rules. And as soon as the judge rules, you can't turn around and go, well, you know, I disagree or I, you know, I demand another judge or whatever else. Anything that you say is really moot. But that doesn't mean the case is over, right? We do have appeals and we do have other options in order to further that case. It's not just a one and done thing. So you have to think about when you're having some emotional conversations and, and, and you're trying to drive a decision from a sponsor. You're trying to get somebody to realize, you know, that the date is, you know, not going to happen in, in the time frame that they want. What you do is you go present your data, you get your answer, accept that answer and say, absolutely, that's what we're going to go after, um, even if it wasn't what you were driving towards, because you're going to have another shot. Essentially, you'll have another appeal. What it just means is that you didn't collect the right data to tell the story to drive the decision that you're looking for. 
So that's it from a three-step process. Establish my mindset, get to the data, and then accept the answer that's given to me. So let's take that and apply it to something that's very, very um, near and dear to my heart from a project management perspective. And that's when we're dealing with a mandated date. Mandated dates is really one of the number one reasons to me why projects fail. It's because somebody will select a project, they'll select a date, they have no idea whether or not that date's possible, but then that becomes the mandated date. And so then what people do is instead of you know fighting back, or, or and it's not really fighting back, but negotiating that date, they accept the date, and then there's either the covert degrading of quality on the backside, or you know they're, they're pulling scope out and they're not telling people and, and, and really kind of finishing the project at about 80% accuracy, which then le- you know, leads itself to uh, poor customer acquisition, poor you know, customer retention, all of those other things. So with a mandated date, one of the first things I do when I receive a mandated date is I challenge the date uh, to my sponsor. And, and really, it's not a challenge. What happens is I just want to know where that date came from. And I'm also trying to uh, explore how well thought out that date is. So when, when somebody says, all right, you got to have this project done by, by December 31st. And I'll say, so why December 31st? And they go, well, what do you mean? And so, well, is that a regulatory date? Is that a first-to-market strategy? What is it that we're driving December 31st? Or is it something that we're just saying that's our goal? And so I'm trying to already push back a little bit in a way, and it's in a nice way, but they could turn around and say it's regulatory, and there's going to be a fine of you know million dollars if we don't hit this date. And you go, okay, now I know what I have to work with. Or they could turn around and say, well, I'd like to have it done by December 31st, but let's figure out what it's really going to take. Regardless, what I'm doing is I'm at least qualifying that date for me so that I understand how stringent it is or what I may be able to do. So then I'll take that to the team and I'll say, look, if possible, I I try to withhold the mandated date from them. Now, I'm not trying to be shady here. What I'm doing is I'm not trying to set an expectation on the team uh, until I really understand how long it's going to take. So, you know, if I walk into a room and says, all right, everybody, we have to have this done by December 31st. Now, how long do you think it's going to take? Most likely the answer I'm going to get back is uh, December 31st. And I'll say, yeah, but can we do that? Um, I guess we have to, right? And that, that kind of hurts the team morale and what we're looking at. What I want to do is just go in and say, hey, listen, I don't care about what the date is that they're asking for right now. Let's plan this project out. Let's figure out how long this is really going to take. And then we can come up with some options if what the date we come up with isn't matching what the expectation date is. So it, it's, it's a nice way to level set the team, let them relax a little bit, let them give me true estimates versus trying to back into a date, which I think is another big reason why projects fail. Project manager will get a date and they'll go, okay, we got to be done by December 31st, so we need to be testing by November 30th, so development's got to be done by November 15th. And you don't know if any of that's possible. And so that adds a lot of stress to the team. So what this is going to do is at least level set. Let them plan out the the way they think, and then that's going to give me some options. So I'm going to pause right there. I want you guys to think about that for a second. We're coming up on a break, and I'll see you on the other side. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, 
servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment. And not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward. And the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy. And the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end -end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end -end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the work-life balance. Welcome back, everyone. I'd like to take a second and thank uh, my sponsor, CA Technologies. Uh, fantastic organization, and, and I work with a tool called uh, CAPPM, or formerly Clarity, which is one of the absolute best tools on the market. So when we're starting to talk about these, these next couple of segments, when we're talking about getting to the data and letting project plans fall out and all these different things, uh, to me, there's no better tool on the market than, than CAPPM. So I, I, I truly appreciate them being a sponsor and, and hope they'll continue to support the work-life balance. So we left off talking about um, not sharing the mandated date with the team, making sure that the uh, team is is level set because I want to get a, a, an appropriate planning process. So what that means is when I come to the team, I don't want to speak in dates. I want them to speak to me in time, commitment, deliverables, predecessors. Essentially, what I want them to be able to say is, here's how long we think it's going to take. Um, however, you know, even though it's just 40 hours worth of work, I may need three weeks in order to knock that out. And... Um, I need to have A, B, and C done before I can do my work. So it helps us build that proper project schedule. So what happens when you build that project schedule is a date is going to fall out of your plan. And what I mean by that 
is if I link everything up the way I'm supposed to, I have my estimates in there, I understand how long everything's supposed to take and in the order in which work is supposed to happen, then a date's going to fall out of the plan. And then I can begin to adjust my thinking based on that, that plan. If that date is in track with what my sponsor wants, great. But more times than not, the date is later than what the sponsor is requesting, so I have to start figuring out what our options are. And without a, a, a properly written project schedule, it's tough to generate those options. We have to do that as project managers and make sure that we're following what we've been trained to do and understand what we're, understand what we're doing. So let me apply this into, into a story. I was working at, at a bank and uh, was building a PMO for them, and they got hit with a $50 million one-time fine, $50 million one-time for regulatory issues. So the regulatory commission actually put three projects into play and said you had to complete these three projects. They all have to be done by June 30th, or it's going to be another million-dollar fine. And for me, I was brand new to the organization. I just started the PMO. So I went to the CIO, and I said, listen, I need to see the process for bringing in new t- technology into the bank. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, you, you don't need to do that. You just, you just tell us what you want. And I was like, yeah, but is there a project schedule? Is there a standard format? What, what can I see? And this guy was a very rule-by-fear CIO. As a matter of fact, he told me, man, I hate all that project management mumbo-jumbo. I was like, I really wish I'd have heard that before I took the job, right? But anyway, I've got to work with the guy. I've got to figure this out. And so I asked to hold what's called a work breakdown structure meeting, and, and we'll cover that later on the sh- uh, uh, some episodes coming up on the show. But in a work breakdown structure, essentially we're defining tasks, deliverables, and we're linking that up so we can see how long things take. And he said I couldn't hold one of those meetings. I was like, well, how am I supposed to get this done? He goes, well, you're the project manager. You just figure it out. So you say, yes, sir. And again, not trying to be emotional and not trying to be, you know, trying to limit my, my career mobility. Uh, you kind of have to sometimes accept that and go forward. But it doesn't mean I was going to stop. It doesn't mean I was going to back into a date. What it meant was is I was just going to have to do it covertly. So I went step by step through the process. So I, I started off and saying, all right, how do I order a server? And, and you know, they said, well, you need a PO. Great. How do I get the PO? Who gives that to me? What happens next? And I did all of that stuff to build out my project schedule. And when my date fell out of the plan, it was October 15th. And I had to be done by June 30th. There was a million-dollar fine. So now we're in trouble. And we got to start looking for ways in which we can compress the schedule without hurting the quality of the project. And so I, I always see tasks in two ways. There's There's... Uh, value-add tasks, and then there's what I call transactional tasks. Transactional tasks to me is is the things where I'm following a process like getting a PO, ordering the server, having it built, that kind of stuff. To me, that's transactional. Where value-add is where we're actually developing the software, we're implementing it and doing QA testing and that kind of stuff. So I always look for my transactional tasks as the first place that I can cut. And because I had a properly written project schedule, I could say, what date do I need the server on the raised floor in order for me to do everything I need to do and still hit June 30th? And so as I worked that out, I came up with the date of, of Valentine's Day, February 14th. So that gave me the ability to go back to the CIO and say, hey, listen, you know that million-dollar project? And he said, sure. And, and I wanted to appeal to his ego, and I was like, hey, man, you're the only one that can help us hit that date. Is there any way we can kind of circumvent a couple of these processes and get me a, a server on the raised floor, you know, by February 14th. And this is like November. And he said, I'll get you one tomorrow. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, you can have a server on the raised floor tomorrow for that project. I said, perfect. Thank you so much. So now I'm already like two months ahead of my schedule. 
So we were able to put the project in. We had even had some patches. Our users were fully trained. And now the regulatory commission comes back. And this is where we demonstrate what's going on with the tool. And I won't go into detail so much with that. But the net net of it was is we were, one, we were the only of the three projects that had that million-dollar uh, fine attached to it that was successful. And so essentially, we got fined $2.5 million. We got fined another million dollars for missing one date, the million dollars for hit, missing the second date, but the, the project team of the second date tried to fool the regulatory commission and, and mock up something that wasn't real. And so that carried a, a half a million dollar fine as well. So the question was for the CIO, why was my project the only one that finished? And how did I know? How did I know I need that server on the raised floor by February 14th in order to hit it? And I so badly wanted to say you know, that it was all that project management mumbo-jumbo, <laughs> but again, wanted to keep my job. So essentially, I was like, well, let me show you. And because I had the data behind me to show how long the process was to run through the IT process, essentially, at first, he was mad and he didn't believe the data. But as we dug in, he realized that some of his own processes was one of the core reasons. I was very upset with the project managers that hadn't figured that out. And as we dove into what they did, they backed into that. One of them said, well, we got to be done by June 30th. I don't have time to plan. Let's just go get it. The second person was like, well, we got to be done by June 30th. And they tried to back into a date, but then they had no idea when they were really behind. And so I always use that story as, as kind of our crux to understanding that if we have the data, we can present what we need, even in situations where we have a rule by fear type of person, and can still affect change. And actually, as a side note to that, the, the bank that I was working with, that same CIO will still tell you he hates project management, but brings me in once a quarter to train the project managers on how to do the proper process. So you actually can enact cultural change by being very positive, but still sticking to the, the things that you need to do to be successful. And so that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from uh, you know, making emotional conversations unemotional is that positivity and success will drive more cultural change than negativity and missing projects. So instead of just throwing your hands up and saying, well, there's just nothing we can do here, and then failing, you can turn around and say, here's how we can be successful. So you are in that can-do attitude. And then when you are successful, people are going to want to know how. And when you start to describe how is when you can truly start to affect true cultural change. It's absolutely po uh, possible, but you're going to get much more results, or many more results, when you're doing that from that positive stance. So part of that, though, in writing a good project schedule, and it leads me to my stressed and overworked team members, one of the first questions I normally like to ask is, who do you think is stressing them out you know, more? And my answer to that is the project managers. And it's the project managers that accept the mandated dates, don't push back and don't plan, that ends up stressing out or overworking our team members more than anything. Because our job as project managers is to protect that work-life balance. Find out how long it's really going to take. Make sure that we can do it within the normal confines of a business day where we're not having to work nights and weekends and everything else in order to meet some arbitrary project date that nobody even validated. Our job is to protect those resources. And so for that, you have to get good estimates. And so that's one of the things that, that most project managers will push back on me. And they said, well, I can't even get my you know, people to give me an estimate. How do I write a project schedule? And my answer to that is they don't trust you with the estimate yet. Because 
in a project culture, what ends up happening is is when you're brand new, you'll give an estimate, but the moment you go an hour over that estimate, it, all of a sudden you're the reason why that project failed. And we have to be very careful of that. We have to recognize that an estimate is just that. We're estimating. We have no idea how long it's going to take. We've never done this project before. How, how on earth do we know how long it's going to take? What we have to be able to do is give a range. And so if you give a range, then it gives that resource, that ability to have a little bit more flexibility, and they're, they're a little bit more forthcoming with the information. And so the, my favorite way to be able to describe that and I'll give you guys the formula and that kind of stuff um, after a break here in a second. But I do want to give you uh, my favorite way to describe. So I normally will not say the project's going to be done on June 30th. That's just not something that that I'm comfortable doing because it's impossible to really figure that out. What I can say is I have a good feeling it's going to be done between June 15th and September, or you know, June 15th and July 10th. Right? I give that range. When that sponsor says, "Well, why can't you just tell me a date?" My response back to them and my favorite technique that I teach project managers is say, well, how long does it take you to get to work? And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, how far is your commute? How long does it take you to drive into work? They'll say, 20 minutes. And I'll say, great, 20 minutes. Every day? Yeah, every day. I say, okay, well, what's the fastest you've ever made it to work? And they can say, oh, well, 15 minutes. And I say, great, what's the longest it's ever taken you to get to work? And they go, oh, two and a half hours. Oh, really? What happened in that two and a half hours? They said, oh, there was an accident on the interstate or there was ice or whatever. And I said, okay, how long have you been here at this company? And they go, 10 years. I said, great. So you've been here 10 years and there's 220 workdays in a year. So that's something you just did 2,200 times. And you just gave me a range of 15 minutes to two and a half hours or you know, roughly 800, 900% variance. Now, what you're asking me to do as a project manager is to go put 20 people in a room that's never done this before, and I have to tell you the exact day and hour we're going to be finished? That doesn't make sense. So let me ask you another question. Can you guarantee, and would you put your job on telling me how long it was going to take you to get to work, say, October 10th next year? So, well, no. So why not? Well, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to be raining. I don't know if there's going to be an accident, all that other kind of stuff. I say, great. That's the exact point I'm driving to. And so what I want to do is I want to continue this story when we come back to let you know how we can still be able to help adjust these people by a very simple question of how long does it take to get to work. This is Rick Morris. You're listening to Work-Life Balance. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other, where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage, where applications aren't just part of your brand, they are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, 
servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment. And not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward. And the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy. And the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end -end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. Welcome back to the Work-Life Balance. This is Rick Morris, and I appreciate everybody listening and uh, continuing our conversation on making emotional conversations unemotional. So where we left off was we were talking about uh, the how long does it take to get to work technique with a sponsor, right? So we want to make sure that we're not being held to this this high standard of being able to foresee the future. I mean, if I could predict the future, I'd, I'd definitely be in the stock market and not a project manager. What I can do and, and, and just to be clear, our job is never to guarantee a date as a project manager. Our job is to increase the percentage chance of hitting a specific date by continually developing options for us to be able to explore. So as we left off, we were talking to our sponsor. We just asked him, how long does it take to get to work? And we also asked him, at this point, would you, you know, how long is it going to take you to get to work October 10th of next year? And would you put your job on the line in, in coming up with that estimate? And oftentimes, you know, the answer is no, of course not. And so the next question then becomes, well, when would you be able to know how long it's going to take to get to work? So if it's, a, you know, between 15 minutes and two and a half hours, when would you absolutely know on that day how long it's going to get, take you to get to work? And so normally the answer is, you know, all right, the car started, I'm on the interstate, I'm past no, all the normal uh, accident points, and maybe I can even just, I can see the, the office in, in, in my uh, windshield. And I say, okay, so that's, what, 12, 13 minutes into the drive? And they're like, yeah. And I said, okay, so at about the 12 or 13-minute mark, that's when you would guarantee it's going to take you 20 minutes to, to, to get to work. Why can't we do the same thing with projects and project dates? So if I say I'm going to be done between June 15th and, and July 10th, why don't we put a marker out there that says by May 1st, we have to select which one of those dates we're actually going to come in. But let us get into the project. Let us see if there's any risk. Let us check to see if there's an accident on the interstate or if there's ice or something like that. Let us get through those portions because my job as a project manager is to help you look good. And what doesn't look good is if we select a date now and we miss it. That's a horrible feeling for the project team. It's a, it's a bad deal for you as my sponsor. What I want to do is be very comfortable when I select that date. So why can't we do it then? And using that technique 
it's been very, very, very successful. I mean, I'm into the 98 to 99% range of getting somebody to see the logic in that so that it allows your team not to relax. We're not saying that that means we can you know, all relax and not have to drive that, that project. What that means is, at least from an expectation standpoint, we have a little bit of a better range and a higher chance for success because we're being reasonable about picking dates. And for those of you that have you know, marketing teams and you know, you got to get that out to, to consumers and all these other things, it still works because all we have to do is define what date is the last day that we have to tell marketing the launch campaign or the launch date. We can say coming spring, you know, here's this new feature where it's coming in the spring. And then as we get closer, we can say, yeah, that's actually coming in March. Then we can say, hey, on March 15th, we're actually launching. So we want to make sure that we're setting the proper expectation with all of our stakeholders and make sure also that the team has the, the opportunity to complete the work and complete it in the right way. Which leads me to that final piece I wanted to talk about, which was stressed and overworked team members. So, you know, once we have great estimates, we have a great project schedule, one of the things that you have to recognize as a project manager, and I'm going to put this also as if you're a resource manager out there, if people are reporting to you, and it's your job to make sure that they're directing their work and getting things done, you have to protect your team at all costs. You need to be the one pushing to make sure that we don't have too much to do and too many expectations where we're missing things and missing deadlines. And the question for me, and, and this is a, a very deep question, um, especially around you know our culture today in, in the workforce, do we have to be working weekends and overtime? And, and you know, overtime and late hours and weekend work, that used to be something when we had to rally around you know, a specific product or something like that and, and get something, something done, but that was a rare occasion. Now it seems these 12, 13, 14-hour workdays are just standard. And if you're not doing it, then you're, you're lessening the expectation of what the business is looking for you. And I don't agree with that. You know, I shared a story on the, on, uh, the last podcast that we did here, the last, the last show, where you know, there's, there's actually a company out there that's reduced the workday to five hours, and they're seeing more productivity out of that uh, because people are working smarter and wanting to get out of there versus knowing that they're going to have to be there for 12 hours or 13 hours. And then people are wasting time and they, they end up, you know, the morale goes down. They end up complaining about how many hours they're having to work while they could be doing productive work. So the biggest thing to know is their utilization. And you need to be factual by it. So we've all heard, you know, drop everything and get this done. Right? And, and really, it doesn't mean drop everything. What it means is you need to do this and all the other work that you're doing. And so with some utilization and being factual, you can help uh, at least align what the expectation is against my current staff. So again, give you an example. I had a sponsor come to me and say, hey, I got this pet project that I want to do. And, and pet project basically is code for nobody knows about it and I don't, really don't have budget, but you got to get it done. So, so I got this pet project and I need you to do this. When, when do you think you can have it done? And so I looked at it and I said, um, well, I'm not sure how long it's going to take to get done because we don't have, you know, haven't had a chance to really plan it, but I know the key resource that I need is going to be this gentleman over here, and he doesn't free up from his existing projects until about October 15th. And this is in the March time frame. And he's like, October? That's ridiculous. And I was like, I know, right? The guy's really busy. And he said, so, you know, what, what are my options? And I said, well, any time you're in an option like this, you're in a resource war. And that's an acronym for me. So I can wait for the resource to become available. I can acquire another resource to get the job done. Or I can redirect the work 
that that resource is doing. So I said, first, if October 15th is out, we could go you know, hire a consultant, bring in a temp, something like that. And he goes, no, 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 I don't have any budget. I said, okay. Well, I said, well, here's the five projects he's working on right now. Which one of these five projects would you like to stop in order to put this project in play? And when he looked at the project list, he goes, oh, no, those, those projects are more important than what I'm asking for. And I said, okay, so October? And, you know, he, he hemmed and hawed, and he finally came up with, yeah, October's fine. So the weird part about this story is, is now it's around August, and we actually finished one of those projects early. So I called him up, and I said, hey, that resource that we needed to do that pet project you wanted uh, just freed up. Do you want to go ahead and queue it up now for August? And he says, nah, I don't need it anymore. And I thought about that. I was like, wow, if I didn't have the strength at the time to know the utilization of my person and push back on this guy, then what I would have done is doubled up the work for this resource who is a very, very trusted resource in our environment. And I would have, I would have doubled up the work on him, made him work nights and weekends, and accomplish something and, and, and take time away from his family that wasn't even going to be necessary a couple of months later. And how often are we in that situation where all of a sudden, you know, something comes up and all we got to drop everything and go after this new priority and people are killing themselves and it turns out the project wasn't even sanctioned or wasn't even something to do. And so what you got to recognize as a project manager and a resource manager is, look, there is a work-life balance. It's not impossible. But if you're not living your life, then what are you working for? If you're not out there, I mean... If you're making them work nights and weekends, that's taking time away from their family or their favorite activity. Or you miss a son or daughter's you know, baseball or softball game or football game. And, and for what? Right? And then what ends up happening is you're going to end up losing your best employees. You don't lose the ones that aren't really doing their job. You end up losing the people who really care, who are going to put the time in, who are going to get that project done. And then they're going to be completely dismayed when they find out, that that wasn't something they really should have been working on. And they start to go, wow, why am I working so hard at this company? They don't even appreciate what I'm doing. And then you're going to lose some of your most fantastic resources. On the flip side of that, you know, the, that resource that I had protected, he had a newborn baby. He was, you know, off at five every day. He had a really, really good fulfillment of his work life. And I was getting more out of him in the seven, eight hours he was there than I ever would get out of him if I made him work 12, 13, 14 hours, especially if I even didn't believe in the project. So you really got to be careful out there and you have to make sure that, that there's some key drivers. So my key drivers to understanding emotional conversations and making it unemotional is, again, you have to get to the data. You have to have that positive attitude. And having facts and data turns emotional conversations into unemotional ones. Now, I will give you this one tip from my personal work-life balance. None of these techniques work on your spouse. As a matter of fact, the number one quote my wife ever told me was, hey, don't you project manage me, right? So one time we were in an argument and I was doing this very logically and she saw right through what I was trying to do and it doesn't work. So this is definitely in the workplace, but you do want to make sure that you are protecting that work-life balance, that you are taking care of your employees. When you're hitting those project dates, your job satisfaction goes through the roof and that success changes a culture. It is absolutely possible, gang. I see it every day in clients that I work with. This is absolutely a key to making sure that we're delivering what people want, when they want it, how they want it, and a great workforce that creates an environment that people want to flock to. 
So I'm going to be off the next couple of weeks. My show falls on Friday, which is going to be uh, Christmas as well as New Year's. So we're going to have a couple of replays. My first live show coming back is going to be January 8th, and I'm so excited about it. I've got John Stenbeck coming on the show, who's right now the author of the number one selling agile book in, in Amazon right now. He's number two in project management, only behind the project management body of knowledge. Um, super excited to have John. We're going to be discussing agile versus waterfall project methodologies and can they exist in the same place. And he's going to be giving us his tips in, in agile workforce. So please tune in back on January 8th. Hopefully everybody has a fantastic holiday season and stays safe and has the time to enjoy your work life and your home life. And you've been listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Moores. Please come back and listen to us again. And uh, you guys have a fantastic holiday season. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. 